From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Shuck. America, the land of the free, so we tell ourselves. Yet 25% of the world's incarcerated are in America's prisons. America makes up 5% of the world's population, and yet 25% of those in prison are in the United States. And 60% of those are people of color. Our prison industrial complex, police brutality, and capital punishment are the theatrics of state terror. It's a social problem, a political problem, and a theological problem. And I think given what we're facing today, uh, and given the fact that all too many Christians are silent about Mm -hmm. the brutality and the brutal economy of lockdown America, given all that, we need ways to retrieve a language about Jesus of Nazareth um, on the cross who suffered what empires do to uh, to its poor and to its dissident. And we need to set that language about Jesus in the public sphere in a new way to challenge the theatrics of state terror today. My guest is Mark Lewis Taylor. He is the Maxwell P. Upson Professor of Theology and Culture at Princeton Theological Seminary. He's a writer, teacher, scholar, and activist, the author of several books, including Remembering Esperanza, A Cultural Political Theology of North American Practice, Religion, Politics, and the Christian Right, Post-9-11, Powers and American Empire, The Theological and the Political on the Weight of the World. In 2001, he published The Executed God, The Way of the Cross in Lockdown America, and in November 2015, he published the second edition to this book, The Executed God, and we're going to talk about uh, that book today. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Taylor, to Religion for Life. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, In the introduction to your second edition, The Executed God, The Way of the Cross in Lockdown America, you write, I have returned to rethink nearly every phrase and approach of this book because I don't know how one can be anything but sleepless with lament, rage, and consternation by the enormity of the devastation wrought by the building, maintenance, and toleration of lockdown America today with its triad of police violence, mass incarceration, and the death penalty, end quote. I want to unpack that with you, uh, but I begin with that quote because it seems to reflect that theology, if it means anything, is political, and it begins with lament and rage at injustice. Can you talk first about the theological task? Indeed, uh, uh, and you're right to begin that way, I think. Uh, theology at its best does begin with lament and rage over a condition of agony. It may be personal, But given the way our personal lives are shaped by social and political circumstances, very often theology at its best, if it's not playing some kind of uh, game of abstraction and spiritualization, theology at its best, I say, uh, does begin with lament and rage. And if it's thinking, it tries to describe what the situation of agony is that provokes uh, the lament and rage, the structural conditions of it, as well as the personal complexities and uh, abysses uh, that we enter at times. 
And moving then to Lockdown America, uh, on the way to the radio station this morning uh, to record this interview, I was listening to Democracy Now! and the host, Amy Goodman, uh, provided a startling quote. She said that America houses 2.3 million prisoners. That makes up 25% of the incarcerated in the entire world. So 25% of the imprisoned of the world are imprisoned in U.S. prisons, even as the United States makes up only 5% of the world's population, and, and 60% of those imprisoned in the United States are people of color. What does this mean, and, and how did this happen? Yeah, well, those are two big questions right there. Uh, to connect it to the first question you asked me, it mm-hmm. means for extraordinary numbers of our families and individuals, a great pain not only for those who are incarcerated, but the children of the incarcerated who um, are are tens of thousands and over a hundred thousand at points. The pain registered as a result of mass incarceration is intensified when you recall that it is a racially skewed population. As you just said, some 60% are prisoners of color, 40 to 50% are are African-American. And given that the black population in the United States is only 12 to 13 percent of our population, that is a disproportionate uh, and disastrous toll taken on the black community of of families. Um, What it means is that our talk about democratic empowerment and opportunity is viciously undermined and subverted by a practice we don't know how to bring under control, Mm. namely the incarceration, the locking up in cages, the dehumanization of bodies in those cages. Um, We don't know how to stop that and to keep that significant segment of our society, again, not just the imprisoned, but their families, in a situation of of life and enablement, which is what democracy at its best should be about. And until we solve that puzzle, we're a long way away from being the democracy uh, that we often call ourselves. Well, you know, some uh, authors uh, have talked about how this is really an extension of of slavery. Uh, James Cone, for instance, that um, the idea of imprisoning with the uh, percentage of high percentage of African-Americans uh, is really a kind of a continuance of our, our, our racist past and racist present. It is. And the careful uh, studies of mass incarceration and its growth uh, show a continuity. But between today's patterns of imprisonment, the practice of incarceration, the convict lease laws of the late 19th and early 20th century, which took the place of uh, enslavement uh, um, in the, the, which was uh, officially abandoned in 1865. It should be remembered that the amendment that abolished slavery includes within it a clause that no one shall be enslaved unless convicted of a crime. Hmm. in which case it would be suggested that slavery might be brought back. And many testify that both the convict lease law system of the late 19th century, as well as our mushroomed mass incarceration population, continue the conditions of slavery. One final note here. There are some major prisons, uh, such as Angola in Louisiana, that are actually built on plantation sites where enslavement was practiced. Um, 
you don't have to have that direct to contact in order to have the linkage of imprisonment today with slavery, but it's one sign of the uh, the visceral connection. Yeah. In addition to um, mass incarceration, there are two other parts of the triad you mentioned in the book uh, of Lockdown America, police violence and the death penalty. How does this uh, unholy trinity work? Well, there are there are many uh, overlaps and ways that they interplay. One of the points I stress throughout the book is that the three together must be seen as different ways to control especially dissident and rebellious surplus populations hmm. in a time when the corporatization of our public life has gone into high gear with the concentration of wealth, not just in an upper 1%, but less than 1% of our population. With that kind of distribution of wealth and the corporatization of so many dimensions of our life, a punishment system is much more uh, prevalent than it would be otherwise. It's not really just about punishing offenders. It's about controlling populations, which is why many scholars today talk about the U.S. as prison nation, or as one political scientist at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, Marie Gottschalk, puts it, we are a carceral state. We are a state that resorts to carceral enforcement, incarceration, and police vigilance and control as a mode of rule, not just as punishment. That's where we are today, and this is uh, the function of Lockdown America is to keep surplus populations, especially dissident ones, under control for a corporate state. If you are just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Mark Lewis Taylor, a professor of theology and culture at Princeton Theological Seminary and author of The Executed God, uh, The Way of the Cross in Lockdown America, the second edition. Uh, your book is divided into basically two parts, uh, one the theatrics of state terror and the other part uh, the uh, counter theatrics to state terror. Talk about, first of all, the theatrics of state terror. What do you mean by that phrase? I mean that the state rules through lockdown America by creating terror that is disseminated either through the police and their occupation of poor neighborhoods or through the mass incarceration that has grown in many ways or actually capital punishment, the direct threat that the state can and will uh, uh, kill and take uh, human life. This is a theater of terror or involves the theatrics of terror in that there is spectacular display often that is crucial to this terror. Uh, Think of the notion of shock and awe, for example, Mm. which uh, the U.S. uses not only abroad, but which has been advocated by police chiefs and others advising the police in this country to keep a neighborhood cowed. But shock and awe is not mentioned made uh, just to startle and to brutalize through a big show, it also lodges in the gut an abiding fear, uh, a reminder that you better stay in line. Um, The state is regimenting our material life in a way that depends on, on terror, on fear embedded in the citizenry, and That spectacle of fear created by the state in multiple ways is what we need to challenge if we're going to take on these problems. 
Now, your book is a book of theology, specifically Christian theology, in particular based on uh, uh, the crucifixion or the execution, more properly stated, of Jesus. So what do you mean by this symbol, uh, the executed God, and how can that help us uh, be an anti to the theatrics of state terror? Yeah, well, one of the things we might remember is that in the context of of Rome, in Judea and Palestine of Jesus's day, a crucifixion was meant to be a spectacle, a terrorizing spectacle. Mm-hmm. As one New Testament scholar, it was a kind of public service announcement that if you act up, if you transgress the boundaries of official politics and religion, this could happen to you. You will be marked as a rebel. Now, the way that event is remembered by the early Jesus followers is such that it actually created a resistant practice to imperial power. I say in the book that uh, this figure executed on the cross, Jesus, when remembered, stole the show from empire in the sense that empire meant for the crucifixion to lead to fear and disintegration and immobilization by the poor and by those who would challenge it. But in fact, it could be remembered in a way that enabled people to to fight back, to resist, to make for life that flourishes even under the conditions of, of execution. So there emerges here a countervailing power of God against the claims to sovereignty that the imperial state takes to itself. Uh, The one who Christians often call God, Jesus, is remembered in such a way that God's countervailing power breaks out among those who remember this Jesus and can make for change. And I think given what we're facing today, Uh, And given the fact that all too many Christians are silent about Mm -hmm. the brutality and the brutal economy of lockdown America, given all that, we need ways to retrieve a language about Jesus of Nazareth um, on the cross who suffered what empires do to, uh, to its poor and to its dissident. And we need to set that language about Jesus in the public sphere in a new way to challenge the theatrics of state terror today. Uh, Because the execution of Jesus uh, seems to be co-opted by empire itself, uh, turning it into kind of a spiritual, you know, dying for the sins and going to heaven versus hell and focusing just on his kind of a uh, a magical or mystical aspect of of his execution. But you're bringing back the historical... Uh, reality of what crosses meant in Rome in the first century and and what, uh, so to speak, those crosses are today. Um, Indeed, right, uh, John. In fact, perhaps one of the most uh, controversial parts of the book in its first edition, but I've uh, emphasized this anew in the new edition, and I hope even more clearly, is that I'm engaged not only in a creative retrieval of the meaning of the cross of Jesus in our political times, but I'm also involved in a, uh, in a critical challenge to those Christianities that have abstracted the meaning of the cross uh, into talk of spiritualized divine scenarios of salvation that are disconnected to what the cross was in the Roman imperial context. Um, it, the cross message has been spiritualized in many ways. Um, 
whatever we may think about the, the standard interpretation of the cross as the place where God died for the forgiveness of sins so that individual persons may know salvation, whatever we think about that, if we do not mention that the one who went to the cross went there for political reasons and do not understand the political demands and the political grace, if I could use that term, made possible for us as political actors in our present. If we miss out on all of that, I say that we have missed out on the core meaning of Jesus of Nazareth's endurance of the cross. Your book, in a sense, is to help Christians perhaps in that setting uh, to understand the the role of theology and the role of, of their own religion uh, in, a, in a responsible way. That's That's true. And I know that in some ways I'm calling all of us to a hard task, to a difficult one. I also maintain in the book that it is precisely along this way of the cross, which is my phrase naming the entire taking up of a political consciousness about Jesus of Nazareth, precisely along that way, I would like to suggest to people they experience a, a new kind of flourishing, a new kind of belongingness to all peoples, um, and often a kind of renewal of one's own individual personal life. So this is not just the stuff of doomsday prophetic denunciation. It's also an enunciation of, a, of another way to find life through rebellion and resistance to a state that kills and disseminates the theatrics of terror. In a sense, it's it's a way of saying good news, uh, this idea of following the uh, executed God of resistance. Uh, yes, good news. It's gospel. And mm-hmm. as I point out at the book, in the book, the, the very notion of gospel was not originally a Christian term. It was a term that was used in the context of Caesar, particularly by generals, uh, bringing glad tidings, hopefully from the battlefield, to report to the populace. So when Christians took the term gospel for the basic message of the crucified one, it could not help but have laid down a gauntlet to the powers of the day in a very political vein. Um, it It was a political and religious challenge simultaneously. And unfortunately, our understanding of gospel and the way we preach the gospel today in so many churches, especially the churches of of wealth and uh, in white supremacist contexts, we've lost that political dimension of the gospel, which in fact, one could argue, is primary in the understanding of it. Mark Lewis Taylor, my guest on Religion for Life, the author of The Executed God, The Way of the Cross in Lockdown America, his second edition uh, out in November 2015. The second half of your book um, is uh, a counter theatrics to state terror, uh, and this is about what we can do uh, following uh, the the way of the cross uh, and the executed God. Uh, politics, dramatic action, building movements. Can you talk a little bit about about how you've seen this happen and how it possibly can happen more? Yeah. Um... I think we need to own as followers of Jesus three very particular kinds of consciousness. First, the consciousness of of following Jesus as involving us in an adversarial politics. We're involved in a politics of 
of challenge to the state of the day, just as much as Jesus was in the state of his day. But then, as I argue in the book, you can show from the narrative gospels, we need to be about dramatic actions and creativity as a way to enact our challenge of the state. Um, Martin Luther King, uh, when he advocated direct action and nonviolent civil disobedience, it wasn't the nonviolence that was primary for him. It was the creativity, mm. the dramatic encounter, what he called uh, a spirituality of militant aggressiveness. And this is the heart of a creativity that most effectively, I think, cha uh, challenges um, the state that we must be in an adversarial relation to. Finally, that, that creativity leads also then to building people's movements, which is the third kind of consciousness and action I uh, discuss in the second part of the book, uh, where you don't just act creatively against. You do that, yes, but it is precisely that that catalyzes new community and social movements, which are the precondition for the rising up and the putting in place of new communities to challenge the imperial body politic that uh, represses so many today. Um, I could say more about particulars, but those are the, the three major moves I'm calling Christians to uh, accommodate. An adversarial politics, a creative dramatic action against the state, and then the organizing of political movements as part of faith. And, and so we can see this in a number of different ways of activists, I think, uh, a few months ago, uh, hanging from the bridge here in Portland to prevent uh, Shell's uh, tanker from leaving, mm -hmm. uh, dramatic action and such as that. And so that's the kind of that raises attention, that uh, puts it uh, uh, on stage, so to speak. But that has to be um, undergirded, as you mentioned, by uh, long-term movements for, for justice, and in this case, uh, to demilitarize the police uh, and uh, to abolish the death penalty. Yes, and a point I would like to make, one which I underscore, I think, in this new edition uh, at numerous points, is that these creative dramatic actions don't always have to be the high drama of a spectacular public display, uh, whether it's the hanging from bridges or a, um, a, a sit-in or a die-in at the city center. Uh, those are all good, and I'm not suggesting there's anything wrong with them, but I think we need to remember that the creative ways that we, we remember and lament and cultivate grief and anger about those taken from us by the police or who are locked away hmm. and incarcerated, the unjustly slain that we we keep to the fore by remembrance, this process of remembering can also be a form of, to use King's language again, militantly aggressive spirituality. Uh, the one thing the state and repressive states the world over want is for people to forget their dead, particularly the unjustly slain. So cultivating remembrance and lament can be a revolutionary act too, as I emphasize in this book. You dedicate the book to uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal, a journalist who spent the last 30 years on death row, just uh, now a life in prison, uh, for a crime many feel uh, that he did not commit. Uh, how has his story impacted you? Well, yes, I gladly dedicated this uh, new edition of the book to Mumia Abu-Jamal. 
in part because he is one of many political prisoners in this country. By that, I mean those who walked the boundaries of so-called legal and illegal behavior and ended up in prison uh, with especially onerous punishments because they challenged the entire state, the entire setup of things, the way their communities were impoverished by corporate power, the way white supremacist structures worked against their communities of color. Mumi Abu-Jamal over the years, and he's really been on either death row or now uh, in life without possibility of parole, Mumia has always written to challenge the carceral state, the state that would kill and disseminate death, both through impoverishment, but also through imperial war-making policies, as well as in the myriad ways the state makes war on its own poor right in our own country. So um, I had to acknowledge that. He's been a part of my teaching in terms of his phone-ins, in terms of what he's written for some of my courses. Uh, I have visited him. But even more than all of this, and this takes the focus off of his person and his skills as a journalist, uh, impressive as they are, what is unique about uh, Mumia Abu-Jamal and many others like him, you could say it about Tamir Rice and Michael Brown, um, mm. Uh, slain by the police, is that they are something like what Walter Benjamin called the great criminal. Uh, they're great not in themselves, but because they expose the violence of the state. And the state likes to hide its violence, to mask it as democracy, as getting tough on crime or fighting evil and the like. But there are some whose punishments attain a certain grandeur because they expose the state. They roll back the coverings that the state likes to pull up. And uh, Abu Jamal has done that with his writing um, as well as his own fight against the, uh, the lack of due process and the unjust, I would argue, frame up of Abu Jamal for the shooting death of police officer Daniel Faulkner back in 1981. So it's the exposure of state violence that is the bottom line response I would make to you about why this book is dedicated to him. And we just have about a minute left for a final question. I, 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 your first edition was published uh, prior to the events of September 11th, 2001. Since then, we've had uh, the mainstreaming of torture, dismantling of Iraq, a nation that uh, uh, seemed to have nothing to do with the terrorist attacks, uh, ongoing spectacle of security uh, Constant being, constantly being frisked in airports. How has this impacted Lockdown America and our response? Um, yes, uh, that's a point well made. Uh, that you also have had the prison uh, turn to private industry and corporate mm -hmm. wealth uh, in our prisons. You have a new immigration regime that the worry about terrorism has brought into being. So uh, those two developments I had to take greater awareness of in this, this new edition. Um, one of the reasons I wrote this new edition was because after 9-11, indeed, the triad of lockdown America, police violence, mass incarceration, capital punishment, became all the more insidious and onerous, and I think created a state of urgency that uh, calls uh, Jesus followers to respond anew with uh, great urgency on their part as well. 
Mark Lewis Taylor, my guest, he's the author of a very important book, The Executed God, The Way of the Cross in Lockdown America, second edition. Uh, Professor Taylor, thank you uh, for this book and for being with me today. Thank you for your questions, and I enjoyed being on the show. Religionforlife.com is a weekly half-hour program that presents leading scholars, activists, and authors on the broad topic of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is free to radio stations thanks to WETS, Johnson City, Tennessee, WEHC, Emory, Virginia, WPVM, Asheville, North Carolina, and KBOO Portland. Podcasts are uploaded every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific Time. Find them with any podcast app. More about the show at religionforlife.com. Be well.